thank you for coming to Carrick Vineyard today. It's great to see you all. Um, you are with us in our series that we're doing at the moment, which is called Emotionally Healthy Church. And you'll see on the screen there a picture of an iceberg, which I think is better than the picture that Paul had when he spoke on looking beneath the surface. So we've looked at that. We've looked at looking beneath the surface. And we've looked at breaking the power of the past. And last week, Paul was sharing about our families and looking at different influences, major influences that we've had in our lives, how we can reparent each other in the church and become more like Jesus, and that the church can be our family. And also, the important thing that he mentioned, which really comforted me, was that we never finish going back. You know, we're a work in progress. There's always new things coming up in our lives, and that can change things or bring new things to our attention. So it's healthy to be dealing with those emotions as we go along, bringing them to God and helping one another along the way. So um, here's a quote for you. And we're hoping to be an emotionally healthy church. So in emotionally healthy churches, people live and lead out of brokenness and vulnerability. They understand that leadership in the kingdom of God is from the bottom up, not a grasping, controlling, or lording over others. It is leading out of failure and pain, questions and struggles, a serving that lets go. It is a noticeably different way of life from what is currently modeled in the world and unfortunately in many churches. So that's what I want to share a wee bit about this morning. It's all, um, tonight, this morning I'm going to share about living in brokenness and vulnerability. So I'm going to be a bit blunt right now. I wonder if some of you are already kind of tuning me out. I wonder if you're kind of dismissing it and you're going, what? Brokenness and vulnerability? That means weakness. I don't want to be weak. Maybe it doesn't feel like it's in your makeup or your upbringing or something that you aspire to. But I just want to ask you to stick with me and keep, keep your heart and your mind open to this. So yesterday I was lying in my bed thinking about all this and the talk. And this song has been going around in my head for ages. Um, it's Chris Tomlin and the words are, Lord, I need you. Oh, hi, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, hi, I need you. And I love that, that song. And it reminds me of what we're talking about here. You know, if we are going to open up our hearts, if we're going to be emotionally healthy, if we're going to live out of brokenness and vulnerability, then we do really need God because that's pretty hard to do on your own. So then another song came up and it was that song, Oceans, which I also love. And the words, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper in the presence of my Savior. So I was just lying on my bed, like singing along to the song. And then Hope came in, and I didn't even know she was there because, you know, I was in the zone. And she just came in and lay beside me on the bed. And she started singing along too with her hand on me. And it was so sweet. Like, it was such a, a special moment. And I said to her, Hope, I just want to follow Jesus. And she said, but you do, mummy. And I was like, oh, it's amazing. So we just, like, um, you know, listened to another song and had a lovely time together. Now, in case you think, wow, what a spiritual family. Isn't that amazing? I just want you to know that the reason why she'd run up the stairs is because she was running away screeching from a fight from her brother. And I was kind of hiding in the bedroom, hoping that it would go away. Also, the previous hour before that, me and Hope had spent 
a bit of time having disagreements which escalated into shouting and fighting about her Irish dancing competition which she's at today, her dress, how itchy it was, how she needed a special top to go under it, how of course I should have known about this and be able to find such a top by tomorrow. So I was getting very annoyed, voices were raised, I stumped up and down the stairs several times, so it's not this perfect family. That was a nice moment but not the norm. So, <laughs> so, I'm being vulnerable and honest, but you know, it just made me think, being emotionally healthy is one of my best gifts to the people around me, so when Hope and I were in the middle of that and we're locking horns about this Irish dancing, you know, I was alternating between trying to keep calm, like trying to ask myself, why is this stressing me out so much? Why am I being like this? And then totally cracking it up and losing it with hope. And then we had that sweet moment together and I just thought, yes, I totally muck this up. Sometimes I get it wrong, but I want to be curious about what is going on for me and be open to God so that I can honor him and the people around me. And Last week, or the week before, Paul and Steve were at the National Leaders Conference. Um, and the first night, Andy Smith from Belfast Vineyard was speaking. And I was listening to his talk, and he really talked a lot about legacy. You know, what is the legacy of us as people? What's the legacy of our individual churches? And what is the legacy of Vineyard? And he talked about contending for legacy. So what do we want the following generations, what do we want our nation to stand on and figure out what God is calling us to contend for? What battles do we need to fight so our kids and the ones coming next can do greater things for the kingdom? And I was just thinking about that and I thought, I want to contend for an emotionally healthy church where we're all living full and whole lives and that spills out into the next generation and spills out into the community so we can see God do amazing things. But to be honest, that has to start with me. I have to do that. And that requires openness and vulnerability and honesty on my part. And sometimes it's easier to just stay the same, go the same way or react in the heat of the moment. And sometimes we do let those negative emotions dominate. But I believe there's a biblical pathway that does embrace brokenness and weakness and leads to life in, in all its fullness. So we can just pretend everything's okay, but then when the storm actually does come and life gets difficult, we're not really ready because we haven't been exploring what's going on the rest of the time. And there's a few ways we can react instead of coming to Jesus. So these felt familiar to me, so I don't know if I've told you them before, but just quickly, we can react by fleeing. So things get tough, our emotions overtake us. Some of us flee, we run away from it by burying our pain in an addictive behavior, and we can all think what some of those might be. We all suffer pain in our lives, and it's hard to deal with those feelings, but we run away from it, we anesthetize it. Maybe some of us throw ourselves into our work. You know, pastors can numb the pain of life by just focusing completely on the church and ignoring the rest of it or we pour ourselves into our children our family but part of it so we don't actually have to look at the stuff that's broken in the rest of our lives so some of us can run away some of us fight we get really angry we get really bitter because life's not going our way and some of us need to deal with that anger in our souls but we get angry with God angry with other people for what's going wrong 
And the third thing is sometimes we hide. You know, we get very good at building our lives in ways that cover up the damage, the cracked parts of it, us, the imperfect parts of us. Um, the guy, um, Pete, who wrote the Emotionally Healthy Church book that I've been reading, you know, he would go around America speaking at all these church growth conferences. He would share how great his church was, all the things that he was doing so well. And he probably looked like a real expert, like he was in control and this is what you do to get an amazing church. But he was glossing over the things that were hard, the disappointments and the setbacks. And he admitted after a while that he, he found himself exaggerating and he looked like he was succeeding and some of it was true like he did have a great church but he realized he was focusing on the success to avoid the disappointment and the weakness and to not be honest about himself and one time he was invited to speak at this conference and he just said no because he knew that he was not telling the whole truth and it was just becoming empty for him so we can flee we can fight or we can hide and I just wanted to dig a little deeper into all of this by looking at the story of the prodigal son now this is probably a really familiar story to many of you but just really encourage you to focus in on it again now if you can see this it's a bit dark but that is a painting by Rembrandt which represents the biblical story of the prodigal son. So you can see in the picture, the younger son is kneeling down there and with his head resting on the father's chest, and that's the older son standing to the side. Um, the, if you want to read along while I'm sharing, it's in Luke 15, chapter 11. So the younger son, he looks really rough there. He's, he's bald. He looks exhausted. He looks emaciated. He's only got one shoe. He's all tattered. And he is a picture of life that has been broken. And we know from this parable that the younger son had demanded his share of the father's inheritance. And then he'd run away from home. Um, so in that culture, for a son to ask for his inheritance while the father was still alive was the same as saying, Father, I'm eager for you to die, and I actually want to live as if you're dead. So what he does is shaming his father and disgracing his family, and he goes off and he has a great time, and how many of you in Sunday school had to act out the younger son, partying and all, but he actually ends up with nothing. He ends up in disgrace. And for a Jewish listener hearing the story, they will see that the son has sunk to the lowest of the low because he touches pigs, and that was considered unclean. In verse 17, it says, he comes to his senses, he turns back towards home, he walks back in shame, but the father runs towards him, and in the, in, uh, the Greek word for the father's sprint is like the word for athletic game, so it's not like a gentle run, he's fully pelting it towards his son because he's so happy to see him, and he's not standing at the door tapping his foot going, this better be good, you know, he's not just like waiting on the porch, he's running towards the son. And he throws himself in the sun before the son can even finish his speech about how terrible he's been and how he'll be willing to be a servant. And he just cuts him dead and he says, you're my son. And then in verse 20, he kisses his son and no other religion describes a God like this. He reinstates the son by stripping off the horrible old clothes, he puts the best robe on him. He gives him a signet ring of legal authority, the shoes of a free man. And he throws a party for him. And that message is so powerful because the father represents our God. And God embraces his shattered, broken child. 
And the younger son, he knows his neediness and his brokenness is a picture of the Christian life. And it speaks to us today because we need to rest in the father's embrace. Otherwise, we could end up like the proud and distant son. And it's a call to you and I to go against the forces that would, choose, um, would try and make us not choose this path, to just pretend we're okay and get on with it. The younger son is kneeling there before the father because he can't do life on his own. He's dependent on his father. He's needy. And that's all of us. You know the song, I need you, oh, how I need you. That's so true. We just need him all of the time. And we leave home, don't we? We leave home, we leave the Father's embrace, and we look for love in other places. You know, a few examples. If I get down because someone corrects me at work, or if I find myself just being jealous of everyone else, or if I can't say no without feeling guilty, I'm lost. I've left my home of resting and soaking in the unconditional love of God. If I'm caught up in games and manipulation and power struggles, then I've forgotten the voice of the Father that says to me, you're my son, you're my daughter, I love you. Then you've left home, you know you're lost and you need to come back. If I attempt to exercise power and control by ignoring someone because they've annoyed me, then I've strayed from the Father's embrace. When I discipline my children, not because I want well for them, I want to help them grow, but because they're embarrassing me in front of people, then I'm lost. When someone challenges my views and I feel threatened and I defend myself and I react vigorously, instead of saying, you've given me a lot to think about there, thanks, then I'm lost. If I need a certain size of ministry, of job, of salary, of car or house to feel good, to feel valuable, then I'm lost. And the younger brother, picture him, that's where I want to live. I want to be aware of my own fragility, my own brokenness, because that's the place where I can grow an understanding of how high and wide and deep is Christ's love. The younger brother comes home and receives the father's love. He doesn't get cast out. He doesn't get dismissed. He doesn't get shunned. He receives life again. And I think that some of us here this morning need to know what's waiting for us when we come to God with our weakness and our shame and our guilt and all those things. There won't be condemnation, but there will be arms open to receive you. And if you look at the older brother, he's really lost too. You know, he's the climax of the parable for the people who Jesus is speaking to. In this painting, this representation, like he's well-dressed like his father. He's looking on, he's judging, he's annoyed. He's almost despising the father's reaction to his younger brother. But he's really more lost than him. And the reason for that is he doesn't even realize his own lostness. His respectability and morality have blinded him. He's living with his father but he's far away from his father, really. And he's a warning to us too. It's possible to be following Jesus, to do all the right things, say all the right things, look like you're reading the Bible and praying and all, but you can be working for God, but be far from him. And how do you know if you're the lost older brother? There's a few signs. If you're holding on to your anger rather than processing it, you're the older brother. You know, it's not wrong for him to be angry. If my younger brother had nicked all my dad's money and ran off and had a party and she and my family, I would be annoyed too. But the issue is, what does he do with his anger? 
He doesn't wrestle with it. He doesn't own it. He doesn't bring it humbly to his father. And that's what some of us do. We stuff our anger down or we don't deal with it. And the key is to kneel before the father and humbly ask some questions. What's this anger about? Where is it coming from? Does it remind me of something in the past? What would it mean for me to be assertive but not aggressive, deliberate but not impulsive, prompt but not rushing in to speak with the person who's provoking these angry feelings in me? Another sign if you're the older brother is when you're grumbling and complaining all the time. Like you can see the older brother grumbles to his father, this son of yours. He, he won't even admit his younger brother's back in the family. He's condescending, he's proud, he's finding fault. When my posture and my heart are like that, then I know I've wandered away from the father. And there is a place for the younger brother or the older brother to process that. It's okay for him to be sad and disappointed. But if we just get the sense here, he's just being resentful. And, you know, when he hears about the party, he's like, why did I not know about this party? It's, it's all about offense. He's afraid of exclusion. There's, no, there's nothing light in his heart. He's just heavy hearted. He's grumpy and he's discontent. And when we find ourselves in that place, just envying other people, it's a sign that we've moved away from the younger son's position of humility. And lastly, if I have a hard time of letting go of offenses like this older brother, it's a sure sign that I'm drifting away. And forgiveness is a whole other topic for a whole other talk, but we just need to come before our father and ask him to help us. So the other figure in the painting is obviously the father. If you look at him, notice his hands, his expression towards the son, his unconditional love. It's cost him. He's been waiting for a long time for his son to come back. He's cried many tears. And this parable teaches us about the love of God that treats each one of us as his favorites. And also points us to the kind of people he's calling us to be. And you know, the church could be full of younger sons running away every time God or someone else doesn't meet our needs or our expectations. The church can be full of older brothers who are grumpy and angry. And we can be both those things at different times, every single one of us. But we need to press into becoming mothers and fathers of the faith, like the father in the story. And I really believe as we share our lives and live out of vulnerability, that people will trust us more. If we come out of hiding and show our real selves, other people will be able to do the same. And we can show the love of God like this father in the painting, in the story, in the parable, in his word, embracing others, loving, empathizing, being pre present and forgiving freely. And our church becomes more and more like a community of grace. Everyone is broken, damaged, cracked, and imperfect. It's a common thread of all humanity, even for those who deny its reality in their life. But God says in our weakness, he is strong. You've heard me say before about the wounded healer. You know, we're all wounded, we're all broken, but we can go and share that with other people, share God's love. We don't have to be sorted out before we can go and help others. And this will filter into the wider culture. Throughout scripture, we see God using people who are flawed and broken. Moses stuttered. David's armor didn't fit. Timothy had ulster, ul, ulsters, ulcers. I knew that would happen. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Jacob was a liar. David had an affair, murdered, abused power. Naomi was a widow. Paul was a persecutor. Moses was a murderer. 
Jonah ran from God's will. Gideon and Thomas both doubted. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Elijah was burned out. John the Baptist was a loudmouth. Martha was a worrywart. Noah got drunk. Solomon was too rich, Abraham was too old, and David too young. Moses had a short fuse, so did Peter, Paul, and lots of Bible characters. Peter was afraid of death, and Lazarus was dead. So God uses crackpots to show that it's from him and not from us. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. David, who we've just said, had many faults, but was still used by God. He committed adultery, he committed murder, but he said this in Psalm 51. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And I'm not saying we just, like, muck things up, we make mistakes, and we just stay like that, and that's okay. You know, we say, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. But when we admit the truth and and the truth about ourselves, that's the key starting point to going somewhere with God. I couldn't do a talk about brokenness and vulnerability and not have a Brené Brown quote. Um, She's um, a researcher who's spent years... um, talking all about this and writing books about it and I love this ordinarily when we reach out and share ourselves our fears hopes struggles and joy we create small sparks of connection our shared vulnerability creates light in normally dark places her metaphor for that is fairy lights and she keeps them in her house all year round to remind her God can restore us as individuals and help us, but it's more than just personal. It's good for our community. God uses our brokenness to help other people who have gone through similar things. And I've seen that so many times. There's people sitting in this room. I could tell their stories or they could tell them themselves of how God has just restored something, helped them in the difficult situation, and that just hasn't stopped with them, then he's used that to, to share it with other people and to change other people's lives. It's in your broken places where you are mo- most often used by God. That's it.